0: Yeah, we've had blockbuster back-to-back-to-back terms, you know, terms where the court is taking on issues that have really high social salience, really high sort of news value, and, you know, that are going to affect a lot of people's lives.
1: Republican appointees will vote one way, and the Democratic appointees will vote the other way, and uh, that, I think, feeds the theory that it is a political institution.
3: Hello, and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It
4: Please the Court. And this is Bob Ambrosi coming to you from uh, just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites and sometimes another blog called Media Law.
3: And before we introduce today's topic, Bob, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio, an online practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com.
4: Well, Craig, we've just wrapped up another Supreme Court term. And uh, as with, uh, I think, every term, there have been many historic cases decided uh, over, especially in in, in the last few weeks in particular. uh, As in uh, years past, some commentators will attribute how the court voted on issues to the various political affiliations of the justices. Others cite changing opinions of the American people. Uh, And there are always those who accuse the court of legislating from the bench. Although some of the traditional rhetoric hasn't changed, clearly, uh, thanks to some of the decisions this term, the laws uh, of our country clearly have changed.
3: Well, Bob, here to walk us through some of these uh, recent Supreme Court cases, we welcome two esteemed guests. The first is a returning guest, Tony Morrow. He is the Supreme Court correspondent for the National Law Journal and has covered the court for 33 years, which he still thinks is the best beat in town. And I think I'd agree with him. Over the years, Tony's also written about the First Amendment and, surprisingly, food, reviewing restaurants for various other publications. He lives in Alexandria, Virginia, with his wife, Kathy Cullinan, and his daughter, Emily Morrow, lives nearby in Arlington. Welcome to the show, Tony. Good to be
1: with you.
4: And also joining us today is Tejinder Singh. Uh, Tejinder is a partner with the firm Goldstein & Russell uh, in Washington, D.C. He's represented parties in Amici before the Supreme Court and lower courts on a variety of matters. In 2014, he argued and won the Supreme Court case Lane versus Franks, establishing that the First Amendment protects the subpoena testimony of public employees. He was named to the National Law Journal's D.C. Rising Stars list. He's a regular contributor to the SCOTUS blog and makes frequent television and radio appearances to discuss developments in the court. He's also an instructor in the Harvard Supreme Court Litigation Clinic. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer to Jinder Singh.
0: Thanks so much. Excited to talk with you.
4: We're, we're very happy to have you here. And I, I wanted to start, we're going to get, get to the cases, but I, I wanted to get your, your take on perhaps the overall uh, uh, atmosphere uh, or trend of the court this term. I, I'm sure you've, you've both seen uh, the, the New York Times analysis that uh, looked at the court's decisions from 1946 to the present and concluded that this term was the most liberal since, uh, I guess you might say, the liberal glory days of the, of the Warren court. Uh, and, I, and I wondered whether each of you agree with that analysis, and, and if so, what, what we should make of it. Uh, Tony, what about you? Well, it certainly is a
1: tempting theme to to, to talk about uh, because of the big headline cases. You know, uh, same-sex marriage and, and the Affordable Care Act uh, certainly came out in ways that uh, – you know the the liberals have been happy about but i think it's it's a little bit uh, oversimplifying things and it's uh, it, it's a matter of the case that came to the court this term uh and i i am a little hesitant to to declare a, a re- dramatic shift and i think uh next term we will we'll probably see um people saying that the court is Turned back to the right, so I, I, I think it's a, it's a blip, but uh certainly, it's a valid, it's a valid theory.
4: Didier, yeah. how about you? Your, your take on that?
1: Yeah, I think this narrative is silly.
0: Uh, the there is one decision that I think is really unambiguously by any. Metric, a very liberal decision, and that's the decision in Obergefell, the the gay marriage case. But if you look at a case like King versus Burwell, right, you'll say, oh, the liberals won that case well, that's true, but in past years where the court was actually a liberal court, that case would never have been heard at all, right? The fact that these questions are being granted and then decided in the liberal direction, that did happen a lot this year, right? The more of the contentious 5-4 cases uh, found the liberal justices in the court in the majority, but what you're really seeing is you're seeing sort of a center-right court that had one very liberal decision and uh, and where a lot of closed cases this time were decided in the liberal way, but as the court continues continues to take a flow of cases. You know, there's an affirmative action case next term, for example. I think Tony's right that we will see uh, a sort of regression to the conservative norm of this court. And I think that the court overall still is rather conservative.
3: One of the questions that we'd like to ask is having to do with the gay marriage case, but not necessarily the effect at the Supreme Court, but more the effect on the country just seems to me that there was an explosion of conversation among people across the country about the import of that decision, the significance of it. Uh, There was the follow-up issue regarding the Confederate flag over the uh, South Carolina Capitol building. What is your sense of how the media and the access to Supreme Court decisions, and apparently, obviously, this was a, a blockbuster decision, what's your sense of how the country is viewing the Supreme Court and interacting with it as a consequence of his decisions, Tony?
1: Well, I I guess I'll, I'll take a first stab at it. It, it certainly has been uh, a few weeks when the Supreme Court has been in in the in the spotlight, and it's not accustomed to that. It usually is uh, sort of off to the side of uh, the political fray, but but these decisions certainly put put the court back in the, in the middle of things and you know some people have said that's very political uh, and i still like to think that the court tries to tries to get it right without ideology having too big an influence but it's it is a it is a question it is a problem i think for the court when when it when it uh, rules you know strictly on the basis of when it's when it's very predictable in the sense that Republican appointees will vote one way, and the Democratic appointees will vote in the other way, and uh, uh, that I think feeds the the theory that it is a political institution. Yeah, we've had
0: blockbuster back-to-back-to-back terms, you know, terms where the court is taking on issues that have really high social salience, really high sort of news value, and, you know, that are going to affect a lot of people's lives. And I think that when the court does that, you know, you'll tend to see tons of political and media engagement with the court. And that's a good thing. You know, the Supreme Court is really unlike every other court in the United States, because it is principally, I think, kind of a policy-making institution. It's wrapped in the garb uh, for court adjudicating cases, uh, but it's not doing the same thing that a federal district court is doing or even a court of appeals is doing. What it's doing is setting policy and often, you know, constitutional rules for the entire country. And I, so I think that kind of media scrutiny and attention is inevitable. And I think it's uh, heightened in recent years because the court has taken on so many of these issues. But I also think it's unambiguously, you know, a good thing and an important part of our democracy.
4: It, that seems to The marriage equality case seems to have been uh... One, uh, that a number of uh, critics uh, have said that Justice Kennedy's opinion was uh, perhaps light on legal analysis and and heavier on, uh, I don't know, social policy, perhaps. Uh, What did you make of of the way the court decided that case?
0: You know, the court's reasoning is a little bit um, it's, it's sometimes a little bit difficult to understand. You know, what the court held in the case is that there are basically two tandem rationales that create a right to marriage. First, it held that marriage is a fundamental right, and it went through the various characteristics of marriage that make it so. Uh, you know, and the, there were four that the court identified, that marriage is important to our individual autonomy, that it's very important to the couples who engage into it, that it's very important for the stability of families, And that finally, that marriage is this important social institution to which the state attaches all kinds of benefits. And the court went through and explained how the nature of those characteristics doesn't change, whether you're talking about a same-sex couple or an opposite-sex couple. And it reasoned, therefore, that this fundamental right to marriage that we've recognized as fundamental for heterosexual couples should also be recognized as fundamental for same-sex couples. It then tacked on a sort of equal protection analysis and said, well, you know, By not extending this state institution of marriage to these couples, the law demeans them. And that's the part of the opinion that I think a lot of people have found. I think people have found ways to criticize both parts of the opinion. They've criticized the first part because, you know, this idea of fundamental rights is kind of a disfavored corner of due process jurisprudence. There's a case called Washington versus Glucksburg that says fundamental rights should be defined very carefully and narrowly. And there's an argument that you know Justice Kennedy's opinion wasn't that careful or narrow, an argument that he candidly kind of acknowledges but then works around. The equal protection part of the opinion is some people have find it dissatisfying because, you know, the normal way you do equal protection analysis is you set up what's called a level of scrutiny. There are laws that are subject only to rational basis review, which are usually upheld. There are laws that are subject to intermediate or stricter levels of scrutiny, which are often struck down. The court in this case didn't articulate the appropriate level of scrutiny for discrimination against same-sex couples, and so it left that open, and a lot of people have found that really dissatisfying. Uh, I think there are good reasons why the opinion was written the way it does, but because it doesn't answer all of the questions, it leaves many of them open, you know, there may be follow-on litigation. There's already a case, as I understand it, from a guy who wants to marry two women, you know, sort of working its way up through the courts. And I think you'll expect to see some of that litigation. I don't, you know, purport to know how it'll turn out. um, And I don't think the court's opinion dictates a result in those cases, but I think, you know, that is sort of the legitimate criticism is that there are a lot of open questions,
1: yeah, just to pick up on on uh, ginger's thoughts i it is true there is kind of a lot of loose language, uh, there's a lot of talk about dignity, uh, and you know a lot of people strive for dignity, and not all of them you know deserve constitutional protection and it's, it's kind of typical of justice Kennedy uh, he's been the author of of all three of the major Gay rights cases, and uh, his uh, his language sort of uh, opens itself to criticism by Justice Scalia, who talks about the Justice Kennedy, you know, celebrating the sweet mysteries of life, and and uh, he said that uh, if I had to agree with what Justice Kennedy said in in this case, the uh, seems like marriage case, I would put up my head in a bag. Uh, he's so uh, embarrassed by this loose language. But that's uh, that's how Justice Kennedy wrote it, and that's how the the, the other four justices uh, went along with it. Uh, they didn't uh, quibble with his language.
4: What do you make of Justice Scalia's uh, attacks, really, on, on, on some of the fellow justices this term? I mean, in addition to there, there was the uh, lethal injection case, uh, in which uh, he— Made, I think it was an, think it was an unprecedented sort of from the bench rebuttal of, of Justice Breyer's dissent, and called it gobbledygook. <laughs> what do you think of, of Justice Scalia making those kinds of uh, comments about the fellow justices?
1: Well, I, I read a story uh, about this in, uh, in the National Law Journal. How can this? How can the justices face each other the next day after they say such awful things about each other? Uh, and most of it is Justice Scalia, uh, but. People Justice O'Connor used to say, "Oh, that's just Nino uh, and and they're kind of used to his bluster and his rhetoric, and uh, Scalia once said that writing dissents makes life worth living, so he certainly loves the the uh, jabs and the and the criticisms, and they, they just kind of shrug it off. the rest of the justices.
0: Yeah, I have no doubt that the justices have grown thick skins against Justice Scalia's dissent. On the other hand, what I found really interesting and kind of bizarre about his dissent in the same-sex marriage case particularly is, you know, he's going off and kind of criticizing the court, uh, the majority opinion, for being, you know, poorly written and sort of cryptic. And a lot of it is kind of like, you know, you are lowering the standards of this court, right? But yeah. he, the way he's articulating that sentiment is, I think, sort of— devastates the kind of, you know, above the fray kind of lofty image of the court. And so I think that it's really interesting and and in many ways counterproductive to what he purports to be doing. And I think also that generally in the exchanges, he winds up looking much worse than the people he's criticizing. And I'm not sure he's yet tuned into that fact. That
3: seems to be a consistent thread in the dissents of the recent Supreme Court cases, including uh, a kind of I think, implied insult from Chief Justice Roberts calling the five uh, who sided in favor of the marriage equality as just lawyers instead of addressing them as justices. And it I just seems to me that they, the, the dissenters and the other justices don't seem to understand that the denigration and the insults that they throw at each other demeans the body itself. Uh, Tony, what's your sense of that?
1: Well, I I agree. Uh, it is awfully strong language, uh, and like I said, they they do uh, manage to get along otherwise. But but still, the public perception, I think, is 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 important. And I you know I think someone like Justice Scalia, he doesn't really care about the public public perception. Uh, he's just going to say what he wants to say. But I think other justices, the Chief Justice, and some of the others uh, do do care. Uh, but uh, they seem to not be able to help themselves.
4: I know we want to get on to talk about some of the other cases that decided this term, but we do have to take a short break at this point. So uh, please stay with us, and we will be back for more discussion of the uh, just-concluded Supreme Court term with our guests. So stay with us.
2: Hi, my name is Kate Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of CLIO. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now how long does it take to move to the cloud and is it a difficult process?
0: No, with most cloud computing providers moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. That's G-O-C-L-I-O dot com.
3: Well, and welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Craig Williams. And with Bob and I today is Tony Morrow from the National Law Journal and Tajinder Singh from the SCOTUS blog. We were talking in our last segment about the marriage equality case, Obergefell versus Hodges. But we also want to take a look at King versus Burwell, the 6-3 decision written by Justice Roberts interpreting the Affordable Care Act as including federal exchanges and providing a, a protecting, rather, a major funding mechanism. What's your sense of, the, of that opinion to gender, It seems to me that they are trying to decide whether or not the court should be making that interpretation as opposed to reading the laws that was written.
0: Well that certainly is how the the challengers to the IRS rule and also the dissent in this case wanted to characterize it but I don't think that's quite right I think the majority opinion correctly explains That, you know, what, what the court is meant to do always is read a statute as a whole. And there are two ways you can take that, you know. Someone who's inclined to read a statute very literally, they will look at the part of the statute that's being challenged at any given moment. They will adopt the most natural reading of that provision. And then they'll say, now, can I find a way to reconcile the rest of the law with this reading, right? And that's one way to do it. But reading a statute as a whole, I think, really means being attentive to what all Congress was trying to do. In this case, the challengers and the dissenters' argument is that what Congress really wanted to do is, in the formula that determines how much of a subsidy people who can't otherwise afford health insurance would get, they wanted to include a massive self-destruct button that would effectively destroy the interlocking reforms of the Affordable Care Act. If a state didn't establish its own exchange. And I think that there is really no plausible story for why Congress would have wanted to do that. And um, or that if Congress had wanted to do it, it would have done it that way. I think the six justices in the majority kind of correctly recognized that that was true. I, people may call this bias or whatever, but I've always thought that the challenger's arguments in this case were pretty frivolous. And, you know, it's uh, it's not too surprising to see a majority of the court reject them. It's a little bit surprising that it's a six justice majority because four justices had to vote to hear the case. And uh, you, you would think, therefore, that at least four uh, were buying the challenger's argument. But I'm not surprised it came out the way it did. And I think it's right.
1: I would agree with that. Uh, and I think there's one sort of background factor that may have been- sixth-justice majority more possible and that is traditionally when the court interprets a law and says you know it makes no sense or it's the wording uh, is counterintuitive or whatever they'll say let's send it back to congress and you know let congress fix it and that used to happen um quite often uh the court the, the congress would fix statutes to more clearly state what they intended but I think uh, the Supreme Court knows—they uh, read the papers too—that uh, this Congress is completely dysfunctional, and uh, there's no way that if they sent this law back to Congress and said fix it, uh, there's there's no way that Congress would have done that. Uh, just impossible. So I think they may have felt that this is the a huge piece of legislation. Uh, that it, it is in trouble, and we don't want to be the ones to destroy it. But Congress can't fix it, so we have to we have to be the adults in the room, and we have to rule in favor of an interpretation that makes the law work.
3: Let's take a step further into the Supreme Court's decisions this term and talk about Walker versus Sons of Confederate Veterans, a 5-4 decision. Approving the state of Texas's determination, uh, DMV, not to issue a specialty license plate design, including the graphical depiction of the Confederate flag, which has taken quite a beating lately. Um, it's come down over uh, several places, and it's not been a very popular symbol of uh, some of the racial hatred in the South. But Tony, what's your sense of the Walker versus Sons of Confederate Veterans decision? Do you think that had any effect on on the justices in terms of the marriage equality case, or just the generalized "we're not going to allow hate"?
1: I don't think it had much to do with the the other cases. Uh, this has been an issue that has confounded the court for a while. Uh, how do you categorize speech like this, like a, like a license plate, uh, in a way that gives states uh, some leeway to tailor a message and not have to be forced to say things that it doesn't want to say. Uh, for example, if a, if a government wants to advocate vaccination for kids, if this really was a First Amendment issue, uh, you know they would have to to allow opponents of vaccination to have you know sort of equal equal access to government communications. So the court has developed this theory that uh, enables governments to to pick and choose, uh, and that, I think, is what was behind this decision to allow uh, the state of Texas to not approve uh, the license plate that had the Confederate flag on it. It has other consequences, but I think that's the basic uh, thrust of it.
4: I wanted to ask, uh, I suspect that uh, with the marriage equality Case and and the uh, Affordable Care uh, case, uh, neither of you were all that surprised by the outcome. I, I wanted to ask, uh, to Jenner, was there any case this term in, in which you were really surprised by how it turned out, either in either in the decision itself or in the in the way the justices lined up to decide it?
0: There were two. Uh, I was actually a little bit surprised by Walker. Uh, you know, I thought that this was the type of thing where. If the court had ruled in favor of the sons of Confederate veterans, you know, the upshot would probably be that Texas would, would scrap its specialty plate program uh, rather than allow, you know, Confederate flags and swastikas on its license plates, um, which were sort of the, the horror stories that were coming down the pike. Uh, so, you know, the, because the consequences weren't that serious and because Justice Kennedy is kind of a strong First Amendment justice, I sort of predicted that that case would have come out the other way and I got that one wrong. Another case that was a little bit surprising to me, um, was actually a case in which we represented one side and I'm surprised that we won because it was a very hard fought case and it was a case where the, the tea leaves seemed to point the other way and that's a case called City of Los Angeles versus Patel. And this is a case about whether the police can, without a warrant and without suspicion, search certain business records. In this case, it was hotel guest records. Uh, And we represented a group of hotel owners who had challenged the constitutionality of a LA city ordinance that authorized those searches. And, um, you know, we were, we were sort of genuinely worried for a while that the court was going to say, yeah, they can search these and that the implications for privacy and business records would have been tremendous and really bad, sort of in a range of businesses. You know, you can imagine cloud computing, your online email, so on and so forth. Uh, but fortunately, five justices decided uh, that we were right, that actually there does need to be some safeguards in place before the government can do that. Uh, and that was a surprising result to me as well.
4: Tony, what about you? Was there any cases that really surprised you this this term? The one that surprised
1: me was the, the Fair Housing Act uh, case, uh, which involves oh, yeah. you know, whether disparate impact claims could be made uh, in discrimination cases. And what that means is, you know, can you prove the discrimination just by showing statistics or data without showing that the uh, government agency or the uh, business intended to discriminate uh, and the court had granted review in t- two cases previously that would have raised this issue. And uh, the Justice Department, the Obama administration, was so scared of the result uh, that it forced the settlement of both of those cases before they were decided by the Supreme Court. But uh, lo and behold, this third case came along, the court took it, it didn't settle, and the Obama administration uh, basically won. The, the court said that uh, the disparate impact claims are are allowed. So I think that was uh, that was kind of uh, a surprise.
3: Tony, there have been a lot of references to the marriage equality decision as a landmark or blockbuster decision, but and even comparing it to the significance of Board versus Brown versus Board of Education. That decision out of the Warren Court was a nine zero decision. It was totally unanimous on behalf of the Supreme Court, uh, kind of dictating to the country that you will integrate, and this is how it's going to be done., uh, do you see the marriage equality case having the same level of, of of landmark basis? And you know years, fifty years from now, are we going to be looking back on this decision and saying, well, of course, it should have been that way, or is this just an anomaly?
1: Well, I think it. I think it still qualifies as a tremendous uh, landmark that uh, pretty much resolves resolves the issue. I don't think we're going to go backwards. I do think it's it's unfortunate that it was 5-4. Uh, um, whereas, as you said, Brown versus Board of Education was unanimous, and the Chief Justice Warren, in that case, wanted it. He worked very hard to make it unanimous so that the country would go along with it uh, more readily uh, and this is obviously um, the same-sex marriage case wasn't that way and, and it makes it a little more vulnerable to, to criticism but but still I think the, the the court made the made the point that same-sex marriage is uh, constitutionally required and I, I think that's about the end of it
4: we're just about at the end of our time, and, and uh, it's, it's about time to, to wrap up. But I'm, I'm wondering uh, if I could ask you, uh, perhaps as, as, your, as your final question here, your kind of wrap-up question, if you could prognosticate a little bit for us and, and talk about what you see uh, might be some of the issues uh, coming down the pike for the next term or what to watch for uh, in the next term. And uh, Tajinder, let's start with you.
0: Sure. So there are two big cases that have already been granted well, more than that, but the two sort of biggest ones are uh, the return of Abigail Fisher's case against the Texas affirmative action system that's back in the Supreme Court uh, and it could portend kind of a real uh, a real blow to affirmative action programs. Uh, there's another case called Even Will, which deals with the sort of one person, one vote principle, which deals with districting and there's a related or similar decision kind of, kind of out of uh, Arizona about their, Uh, what their redistricting commission can do. And these have important implications for how our democracy works. You know, we'll be following those cases very closely on uh, SCOTUS blog. And so any listeners who are interested, you know, can kind of tune in with us and continue to see the developments unfold in real time. They'll be briefed over the summer and argued toward the start of next term. And that's just us getting started. You know, the rest of the term may have even
1: more big cases.
4: Tony, anything else on your radar for next term?
1: Well, uh, there's certainly there are some uh, abortion rights cases coming coming up. They haven't been granted yet, but uh, certainly will kind of resurrect the issue of what it constitutes an undue burden on, the, on women's right to abortion. So that's one. And there's one that it comes into uh, under the court's original jurisdiction: a dispute between states. And this hasn't been granted either yet. But uh, but the states have. Um, Oklahoma and Nebraska, I believe, have sued the state of Colorado over its uh, legalization of marijuana. They've claimed that uh, this law has affected drug trafficking and crime in their own states, and they uh, believe that uh, uh, the Supreme Court should intervene and halt that, uh, uh, that legislation.
3: Great. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Uh, we'd also like to get your contact information so our listeners can reach out to you after the program if they would like to. So, uh, to gender, let's get your contact information before we wrap up.
0: Sure. You can look me up at our firm's website, which is goldsteinrussell.com, and I'm easy to find we only have four lawyers. Uh, and, or in the alternative, it's gotusblog.com.
1: Wonderful. Tony? Well, uh, my uh, email is uh, tmauro, that's T-M-A-U-R-O, at ALM.com, and that stands for American Lawyer Media. I'm also on Twitter at uh, Tony Morrow, T-O-N-Y-M-A-U-R-O.
3: Great. Well, that, that brings us to the end of our show. This is Craig Williams. I'm here with Bob Membrosi. Thank you for listening. Join us next time with another great legal topic. When you want legal, think Lawyer to Lawyer.
2: Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, Produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes.